Fourth Estate presents The Christmas Chronicles, a podcast from me, Nigel Slater. In this series, you'll be joining me on a crisp walk through midwinter in its cold, glistening splendour, all the way up to Christmas Day. Along the path, there'll be recipes for some of your festive favourites and some new ideas too, to excite your palate in the cold months. You'll be hearing some selected extracts from my audiobook, The Christmas Chronicles, notes, stories, and a hundred essential recipes for midwinter, as well as some new content that we've recorded here at my home in North London. It's Christmas Eve, and in this episode, I'll be bringing in the evergreens, as tradition dictates, burning the Yule log in the fireplaces of our old house, and getting organised for tomorrow, making the gravies, cooking a parsnip loaf, and whipping up some brandy butter. We open our presents, and I'll take you through my recipe for hot smoked fish and leek pie. My unshakable habit of making a fish dish on Christmas Eve has never wavered, and a good, nicely balanced brandy butter to effortlessly melt into your steaming pudding tomorrow evening. 24th of December, evergreens, and a new fish pie. Christmas Eve, and I'm bringing in the evergreens. I do this early in the day, so they have time to dry if they are, somewhat inevitably, dripping with rain. My ritual, but one that dates back to Roman times. You from the garden to adorn the mantelpieces, holly and ivy to drape over the oak table, a bunch of mistletoe to hang from the old lantern above the fireplace in the hall, and, most important of all, a lichen-encrusted branch, dotted with fir cones barely bigger than acorns, a benign presence from the forest to watch over the unfolding festivities. The yew is poisonous, but I've never worried about that. My visitors are hardly unlikely to resort to tucking into the decorations. The practice of filling the house with evergreens has been with us since Roman times, the plants chosen simply because they were in leaf, or, in the case of holly and mistletoe, fruit. They show that, despite appearances, life is still present. The garden is simply sleeping. Symbols that mark not the end of the year, but the beginning of a new one. I bring in holly, too. Not from the garden, but in string-tied bunches from the farmer's market. Apparently, holly is considered a man's plant, ivy a woman's. Heaven knows why. Holly is hated by witches. My childhood bedroom at home had a holly tree outside the window. I looked forward to spotting the berries, especially if it had snowed. On a crisp winter's morning, the view from my room was that of a Christmas card. The bunches of holly, their leaves glossy, almost black, are stuffed into the empty fireplaces peppered around the house. Sometimes there's enough to fill a portly jug on the study table too, I rather like the idea that in Sweden, the floor used to be strewn with spruce and juniper. In Poland, straw was used in a similar way, habits that are wholly about bringing in good luck and benign spirits. The Yule Log Fires burn in only two of the fireplaces in this old house. I would dearly love to light those in the kitchen, bedrooms and bathroom too, but running up and down the stairs with buckets of ashes is beyond me, not to mention the risk that lies in an unattended fire. Central heating may be unromantic, 
but I'm all for it. The term Yule Log is now associated with a buttercream-filled chocolate Swiss roll, decorated to look like the branch of a tree, the charm of which has so far eluded me. Step back 50 years or so, and the Yule Log is a far more interesting affair. Each Christmas Eve, a magnificent lump of wood, vast in both circumference and length, was brought into the house and partially burned over Christmas. It would be allowed to go out, leaving it somewhat charred, and then it would be used to light the following year's log. During the intervening 12 months, it would be kept in the house, where its magical properties would act as a talisman against lightning, hail, family ills and house fires. My father used to bring in the most splendid log he could unearth from the pile in the woodshed into the house each year. It is a deed that dates from the 16th century, a pagan ritual believed to have German origins. The Encyclopedia of English Folklore mentions it as a 17th century occurrence, yet its presence was well known earlier, when it was known as the Yule Clog and could date back to the Saxons. Jerry Boulder, author of Santa Claus, A Biography, suggests that the idea could go back as far as 1184. Whatever, the burning of a large log is well documented. Further afield, particularly in Eastern Europe, the story becomes even more delightful. Clement Miles, writing in Christmas Customs and Traditions, mentions a Dalmatian habit of wrapping oak trunks in red silk and adorning them with leaves and flowers. In Serbia, three oaks are felled for each household, then brought into the room and lit at twilight. In other rural areas, wine or corn is thrown as the logs are brought over the threshold. Italy and Provence have their ancient Yule log observances too, still occasionally followed. The rule is not to remove any ashes from the house on Christmas morning, while some households insist that ashes should only be removed once a green leaf or twig has been brought in. The Yule log is more than just a lump of burning wood. It is seen to represent life itself. Even in these times of centrally heated homes, it is not difficult to see the importance of a fire in the grate and its association with warmth, good health and happiness. Whether a log of wood can have powers beyond keeping us warm depends on your way of looking at things. The Christmas Eve Dinner The house is looking gorgeous. The tree shimmers in the corner of the dining room, a space which for most of the year doubles as my office. Candles are lit on every available surface. There are no window ledges in this house, so every side table and mantelpiece becomes home to a candle or two. Every empty fireplace is stuffed with holly, and ivy hangs from every mantelpiece. The table is laid, an old sheet standing in for a tablecloth, and the lights are low. We start with champagne flushed with a dash of pomegranate juice, dishes of basil, mint and parsley to pick at, a habit picked up in Lebanon, and crisp pastries filled with green olive paste. We eat a fish pie, bulging at the seams like an overstuffed pillow, its filling full of herbs, cream and smoked fish oozing as we cut it. At its side, a cucumber salad, tiny batons, carelessly peeled to show the bright emerald green under their skin, tossed with dill and tarragon vinegar. There will be the trifle I made yesterday if I can find the rhubarb, if not an apple version. Truth told, the British make less fuss of this day than the rest of Europe. 
For much of the continent, this is the principal dinner of the season, and feasting can go on until the wee small hours. Historically, this is the night before Christians broke their long Advent fast. Fish is the most popular choice. There is not a turkey in sight. From Poland's carp with gingerbread sauce to America's fish pie, Christmas Eve dinner is a piscatorial feast. Most spectacular of all is La Vigilia, the Italian feast that involves seven fish dishes, from bacalao and baked cod to octopus salad and deep-fried calamari, which can go on for 24 hours. My habit of serving some sort of fish dish on the 24th of December is unshakable, but for reasons that are more practical than religious. Today is the last day for buying fresh fish until well into the new year. This is my last chance to eat oysters, mussels and mackerel, and indeed anything that isn't frozen or smoked. For years I've made a fairly standard fish pie, usually of haddock, prawns and mussels in a creamy sauce, topped with deep furrows of mashed potato. Served in a deep enamel pie dish, it was splendid, but a recipe that involved the most unbelievable amount of work, not to mention using almost every saucepan in the house. Five years ago, I decided that a large pastry-based pie, a sort of fish-based beef wellington, was both more spectacular and less of a hassle. I stuffed two whole fillets of skinned salmon with shredded cucumber and wrapped them in puff pastry. Lighter than a potato top pie and quicker to produce, it was a doddle. The recipe has proved to be one of my most popular ever. Can't tell you the number of people who come up to me after Christmas to tell me how much everyone enjoyed it. The recipe is in Kitchen Diaries, Volume 2, if you're interested. This year, I feel a change is needed. A dish that has the crisp and flaky crust of the latter, but something of the creamy filling of a traditional fish pie. I should mention that the filling must, absolutely must, be allowed time to firm up in the fridge before you wrap it in pastry. And now a recipe. Hot smoked fish and leek pie. This pie reheats well, should you need to do so tomorrow. Serves eight. Leeks, 500 grams. Butter, 40 grams. Double cream, 500 milliliters. Plain flour, three heaped tablespoons. Hot smoked salmon, 250 grams. Smoked mackerel, 250 grams. New potatoes, 300 grams. Four tablespoons of olive oil. Chopped parsley, three tablespoons. Chopped tarragon, two tablespoons. Puff pastry, 375 grams. An egg and some nigella or sesame seeds, a tablespoon. You will need two large baking sheets and a piece of baking parchment. Cut the leeks into discs one centimetre in width. Wash thoroughly, then put them into a deep, heavy-based pan with the butter and set them over a moderate heat. Let the leeks cook for eight to ten minutes, covered with a round piece of greaseproof paper and a lid, so they cook in their own steam and soften without browning. Gently warm the double cream in a small pan and remove from the heat. Add the flour to the leeks, stir, leave to cook for a couple of minutes to get rid of the raw taste of the flour. Then break the hot smoked salmon and mackerel into large flakes and gently stir into the leeks. Pour over the warm double cream and leave to cook over a low heat for five minutes. Remove from the heat. 
Slice the potatoes into thin coins, each about the thickness of a one-pound piece. Warm the olive oil in a shallow pan, then fry the potato slices on both sides over a moderate heat until golden. They must be soft inside. Fold the cooked potatoes into the fish and leek cream. Season carefully with salt and black pepper. Add the chopped parsley and tarragon, then transfer to a mixing bowl and leave to cool. Chill thoroughly in the fridge. If you skip this step, it will be impossible to shape the pie. Set the oven at 200 degrees centigrade, gas mark 6. Place one of the baking sheets upside down in the oven. Line the other one with baking parchment. Cut the pastry in half, then roll out each piece to a rectangle, 32 by 22 centimetres. Place one rectangle on the lined baking sheet. Pile the cold filling on top of the pastry, leaving a border on all four sides of at least 2 centimetres. Smooth the top of the filling so you have a deep rectangle of mixture. Beat an egg in a small bowl or cup and brush the bare edges of the pastry generously. Place the second sheet of pastry over the filling. Then press the edges of the two pieces of pastry firmly together to seal. It's important that they're well sealed, otherwise your filling will leak. Brush the top layer of pastry all over with the beaten egg. Scatter with the nigella or sesame seeds, then pierce a small hole in the centre with a knife or the handle of a wooden spoon. Place in the oven the lined baking sheet on top of the hot upturned one and bake for 40 minutes until golden brown. Leave to settle for five minutes, then slide the pie off the baking sheet onto a serving board or dish and slice. Lighting the Yule Candle Enchanted as I am by the ancient ritual and magic of the Yule Log, I'm more likely to follow the more modern custom of burning a Yule candle. My fascination with candlelight is no secret, but the idea of keeping a flame burning throughout the night of Christmas Eve is both a joy and a challenge. It is, of course, a fire risk, and not something I would recommend, but it is one that I'm happy to take ritually each year. It is asking too much of a nightlight, most burn for just six hours, so a large candle it must be. Much of Europe still lights a large candle on Christmas Eve, sometimes two. They should still be burning in the morning. I remember a midwinter trip to the city of Gothenburg, where a flame seemed to glow in every wooden-framed window. There is something thoroughly hygge about coming down to breakfast on Christmas morning to find a flame burning in a jam jar. Tradition has it that the light must not go out, for fear of death in the family. But I'm not one to take notice of negative traditions, only positive ones. Some families in Scandinavia, where candles are more popular than in Britain, still let two candles burn overnight on the kitchen table. They're extinguished at sunrise. In earlier, more religious times, the candles wouldn't be snuffed until the church service, in which case it would be done by the eldest member of the family. My own heavy beeswax candles are lit on Christmas Eve, secured in tall, heat-proof glass jars and left to burn quietly throughout the night. I've never known them not be there, twinkling and glowing on Christmas morning. Getting organised You will probably have wrapped the presents and decorated the tree days ago, 
There are some people who leave this until Christmas Eve, all very well in Victorian times, but I find there is far too much to do on this day as it is. The idea of chasing the sellotape or replacing the missing strings on a bauble at this late stage is not my idea of fun. For the risk of sounding a bit do it and dust it, this is a chance to get organised for tomorrow. No matter how late you stay up, it will be time well spent. Gravies I make the gravies for tomorrow. I cannot recommend this too highly. One for the turkey or goose, the other for the vegetable loaf. It takes a good two hours of my day, but it is a job that I find deeply satisfying, and they will both be richer, more mellow, when they emerge from a night in the fridge. The brandy butter. Something else to get out of the way for tomorrow. Frostily gritty with sugar and scented with finely grated citrus, we've been watching this seasonal spread slide down our pudding since the 1700s. Cold, straight from the fridge, it provides a contrast to the steaming heat of the pudding. Watching it melt into the jumble of raisins and spice is one of the tiny triumphs of Christmas. Americans know our brandy butter as hard sauce and sensibly bring it out for other puddings too, such as bread pudding and, excellent idea this, gingerbread. The recipe. Butter should be room temperature when you start, otherwise it will take an age to soften under the beaters and will probably bounce out of the mixing bowl. Unsalted is the way to go. Sugar needs to be caster, so the glisteningly gritty quality is preserved. White will do, but the modish golden sugar is my own preference, if only because of its colour. However you dress it up, it is still sugar. Icing sugar will make the sauce altogether too sweet, though it might be an idea for those who dislike the grainy quality of the original. No one wants a dollop of buttercream on their pud. The soft, damp-textured brown sugars such as muscovado add deep butterscotch or caramel notes to the sauce, bringing more to the party than just sweetness. Demerara is a tad too gritty. Orange and lemon zest bring brightness and a seasonal scent. Take care only to include the very outer zest, none of the white pith that lies underneath. Oranges do the job, but clementines, the tight-skinned, flat-topped citrus fruits, feel more appropriate. The baggy-skinned, easy-peel varieties are useless for grating. Vanilla should be extract, or seeds scraped from the pod. Often forgotten, but to my mind essential, the tiny brown-black seeds add an ice-creamy note. Don't even think of using the chemical-tasting essence. Avoid the temptation to increase the quantity of brandy. It will simply make the sauce bitter. The recipe is pretty impossible to get wrong, but I would suggest that the butter is left out of the fridge for an hour before using and that you don't overmix it, which might cause the sauce to separate. Introduce the brandy slowly stopping promptly at any sign of curdling. Refrigerate the finished sauce for a good two or three hours or overnight, tightly wrapped in paper or cling film. Used soft and warm, there'll be no contrast with the pudding. Variations. Sherry, rum and whiskey are all perfectly acceptable alcohols to use in place of the more popular brandy. The dark brown sugars are worth trying, but are best mixed with white or golden caster, so as not to overpower with their intense butterscotch character. Ground almonds have their supporters too. Add them once the butter and sugar are thoroughly creamed. It's worth mentioning here 
that Nigella Lawson has a voluptuous take-no-prisoners version using cold caramel sauce and butter. Nutmeg, a little and very finely grated, will give the butter the homely quality of a custard tart, cinnamon likewise. The genre has its detractors, most of whom seem to prefer double cream, custard or vanilla ice cream. And now a recipe. A good, nicely balanced brandy butter. This will serve eight. Unsalted butter, 180 grams. Soft brown sugar, such as muscovado, 90 grams. Golden caster sugar, 90 grams. A clementine, a small lemon and a vanilla pod and three tablespoons of brandy. Take the butter out of the fridge an hour or so before you start. Cut it into small dice, as this will help it marry with the sugar more successfully. Cream the butter and sugars, either with a wooden spoon, or, better I think, with the flat paddle beater of an electric mixer. Taking care not to overmix, which will send the sauce oily. Add any extras, such as ground almonds, two tablespoons. Remove the zest of the clementines and lemon using the finest side of a grater, then add and combine. Slice the vanilla pod in half lengthways, then scrape out the seeds with the point of a knife. Stir them into the creamed butter and sugar, and then add the brandy. Make the butter a day or more before in advance and store, tightly covered, in the fridge. You can freeze it too. The Visit from Santa Tonight is also the night that Father Christmas is due to visit. Please don't tell me you are not excited. I know I am. The idea of Santa Claus flying across the sky on a sleigh piled with gifts, pulled by reindeer, is suspiciously like the legend of the white-bearded, long-cloaked Norse god Odin, Woden. He also travelled the night sky, but on an eight-legged horse called Sleipner, distributing gifts while people slept. Whoever turns up will need to get their descent right. Only the kitchen chimney in this house is wide enough for a large fellow to get down. The others will barely take a chimney sweep's brush. I should leave a glass of sherry and a sugar-dusted mince pie. Santa's eight reindeer, Dasher, Dancer, Prancer, Vixen, Comet, Cupid, Donner and Blitzen, first mentioned in the 1923 poem The Night Before Christmas, can rest briefly on the roof. It's always worth learning their names. They come up on television quiz shows from time to time. The head reindeer Rudolph, incidentally, is a more modern invention. He first appeared in 1939 in Robert L. May's book Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and has rather stolen the other's thunder. The night before Christmas. Just before bed, we shall exchange gifts. This is new, both from a personal aspect and from an historical one. Our family traditionally open their presents on Christmas morning. Many other families wait until Boxing Day, a custom that dates from when those in service open their presents. The wait must have felt like an eternity. I, like many others, now open mine on Christmas Eve. Until the Reformation, December the 6th was the day of gift-giving, as it still is in much of Germany, Hungary and Slovakia. 16th-century Protestants moved the day to the 24th, and the bringer of gifts to the Christkindl. We have a roly-poly Santa Claus, 
white-bearded and scarlet-cloaked, bringing sacks of presents on a sleigh. I promise you, if you go out at midnight and look up at the night sky, you will see his sleigh, weighed down with golden sacks of beribboned presents, being pulled by a troop of reindeer over the rooftops. In most illustrations, there will be snow too, but I can't promise that. He stops at the homes of good children and climbs down the chimney with his sack of gifts. It is traditional to leave a mince pie and a glass of sherry out for him to speed him on his way. It's curious that no matter how hard I have tried and how excited I am, never once in 60 years have I actually managed to see him. In Germany, Austria, Poland, the Southern Tyrol and the Czech Republic, and much of Latin America too, the presents are bought not by Santa, but by the Christkindl, the blonde angel representing the Christ child. No doubt an attempt by the Lutheran Church to get children to think of Jesus as a good thing, like our own dear Santa, the children never see the Christkindl and are warned not to stay up for fear of not being brought their presents. Yes, that old trick. In Austria, so I'm told, you may get Christkindl, the Archangel Gabriel and St Peter performing in a play directly before the presents are handed round. There are gifts only for good children. In Russia, presents are delivered by Kalyada, a maiden in white who arrives by sleigh and hands over the presents in return for a carol. Whether our presents arrive by a jolly chap in red or a straw-haired angel with wings, they must be opened. I thoroughly dislike opening presents in front of the giver, which is why I prefer mine to arrive by sleigh in the middle of the night. I feel that they can read my mind as I pull the ribbon and wrapping paper slowly and ostentatiously from the parcel, praying that they won't be able to see my disappointment when the enclosed gift is thoroughly wrong. The Night the Spirits Roam The 24th of December is, for much of the world, the night of the supernatural, much more so even than Halloween. Traditionally, this is the night some Scandinavians stay at home for fear of bumping into witches and trolls, the night the dead return and are made welcome, the night not to be caught out when the cock crows. Ghosts are much easier to imagine in winter, the dark, of course, but it is the half-light, the dusk that hovers between late afternoon and early evening, that is so much more suited to seeing spirits, the bare trees with their stripped, witchy branches, and the shadows that linger at this time of year only add to the prospect. This may well be why the lane outside the house is so quiet tonight, and why a walk round the garden by the light of a lantern is carried out in silence. Note to self, leave stocking out. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Christmas Chronicles, a podcast from me, Nigel Slater. The Christmas Chronicles, Notes, Stories and 100 Essential Recipes for Midwinter is available now in hardback, audio and ebook, and published by Fourth Estate. Join me again tomorrow in our final episode for a hearty Christmas dinner. Nigel Slater's Eat is one of his best-selling and most popular books. Now he has written the green follow-up, Green Feast, a book packed full of short, doable and fast vegetable recipes. Green Feast is split into two volumes. 
Greenfeast Spring Summer, coming in May 2019, and Greenfeast Autumn Winter, which will be published in September 2019. This is exactly the food everyone wants to eat right now, all told in Nigel's warm signature style. You can pre-order now from all good bookstores.